1: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card.
0: I was so terrified i I was so nauseous and she called me in and she said um the character's good the setting's good you've got the dialogue but it's not funny it has to be funny i want it funny and i was like it's a play about nuclear war and she said you're funny make it funny this is design matters with debbie Millman.
1: On this episode, Debbie talks with V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, about her abusive father and about how feminism has shaped her career.
0: I just wanted to give women an opportunity to tell someone their story because they needed to tell their story. And a lot of it, unfortunately, was about sexual abuse.
1: A quick warning, there is discussion of sexual assault in this episode. Here's Debbie.
2: Eve Ensler is no more. After she finished her latest book, The Apology, written from the point of view of her father, who physically and sexually abused her when she was a child, she changed her name. Eve Ensler is now simply V. She joins me from her home in upstate New York to talk about The Apology and about her extraordinary career as an activist and playwright. V is the author of The Vagina Monologues, which first appeared off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, in 1996, and has been performed around the world ever since. Just some of her additional books and plays include The Good Body, I Am an Emotional Creature, The Treatment, Necessary Targets, as well as The Remarkable Memoir, which was also a one-woman show titled In the Body of the World. V, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Debbie. I love your show, and I'm so excited
2: to have a conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored that you're here. V, I understand that you have a singing street dog from Tijuana named Pablo. What does he <laughs> sing? you know that. <laughs> well, what does he sing?
0: Well, he sings just about everything, but his favorite song is Happy Birthday, without a doubt. And there is never a moment that anyone sings happy birthday that he doesn't join in. He's quite astonishing. And he's an empath. He's really one of the most special creatures I've ever met. It comes from deep, deep within him. And he fully commits himself to every song with the greatest passion. And it wipes (laughs) him out afterwards. He gets really tired. (laughs) <laughs> Where did you find him? Did you find him in Tijuana or did he come from Tijuana? A person, a really lovely woman who is devoted to rescuing animals was here. And I I was really hungering for a dog. Um, I hadn't had one in a few years because of traveling and I just didn't feel like it was fair. But when I moved to the woods, it was time. And she showed me this picture that she, of this dog that she was maybe going to give her sister. And I was like, no, that's my dog. I I know that's my dog. And um, she was so kind because I was performing in the body of the world at the time. So she and my son, they had the dog trained for me. And then the day after the show closed, they bought Pablo as my present. And, oh, my God, he is such a special, special, special
2: being. Dogs really do have the ability to transform how a person loves. I, I had two dogs for quite a long time, and I credit them with opening my heart.
0: I, I really think it's true. I mean, I there's a generosity, there's a devotion. Um, I'm I'm actually kind of working on this piece that it's now in his voice. It's going to be his book. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and 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 he has friends from all over the world, you know. But one of his friends. Is adventures he he talks about devotion and how people don't understand devotion and they always misinterpret it like they say you know oh you're you're acting like a dog in this kind of um condemning and 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 undermining kind of way when in fact devotion is a high level of intimacy and and emotional achievement and i think he teaches me so much about devotion and what devotion to any one or anything really means it's so beautiful.
2: I can't wait to read it. <laughs> um, the Ordinarily, I start my interviews with my guest's origin story and journey along into their education and career obstacles and triumphs. And there is, for the most part, a narrative arc that I follow and usually end the interviews with my guest's most recent work. But in order to really do your life story justice in the best way I can in an hour or so, I decided to start with your most recent book and then go back to the beginning and then move ahead into your future. And last year, you published a memoir titled The Apology, where you imagined what your now deceased father would say to you if he were able to apologize for the sexual and physical abuse he inflicted on you as you were growing up. And you begin the memoir with a simple dedication for every woman still waiting for an apology. Um, Why that dedication? Well, I think after working now
0: for over 20 some odd years to end violence against all women and girls and touring the world, um, literally I've been to probably close to 80 countries, sitting with women in, you know, um, refugee camps and town hall meetings and in places um, where women have suffered the greatest violence and listening to story after story after story. What just hits me and has hit me over and over is how few, if any, women I've ever met, who have ever received an apology from their perpetrator. And the impact of that, the long-term impact of never ever hearing the person who devastated your life take responsibility for it, make amends for it, own it, um, step into it. And I think there is a longing, there is a yearning in so many women for that apology, for that reparation. In the same way that if we look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter right now, there is a longing for apology, for acknowledgement, for reckoning, for reparations, and the same with indigenous people who were here at the beginning of this country. And I think what really hit me as I've I've listened to women is there, there's not even the expectation of that apology. Right. There's not even the belief that that's even remotely possible in any realm. And that feels outrageous to me.
2: Yeah, I read that you've been disappointed by the self-pitying public apologies over the last two years by men accused of abusing women and stated that you haven't seen a single man reckon with what he's done. Do you think it's too much to ask that abusers could use your book as a blueprint for an apology done right? Right. Well, there was this wonderful journalist named Deca Aikenhead who um, did
0: a wonderful piece on the book when it first came out in London. And she said, she suggests that every survivor send this anonymously to their perpetrator, (laughs) which I thought was a genius idea. Um, You know, it's been really an interesting journey with this book. And it's really been surprising because what's been surprising is how many men have responded to it. You know, how many letters I've gotten from men, Um, How many male journalists or male reviewers seem to understand it? And how many men, it seems to me, are looking for a way to come to terms with what they've done, with bad behavior, with a history that is plaguing them on some, but don't have the means, don't have a method. And I'm more optimistic since writing the book that there is, could actually be a time where we begin to move into a time of reckoning. I mean, I think that's happening in terms of racial justice right now, that we are moving into an all out uprising reckoning. And I think Me Too was the beginning perhaps of the next stage of a reckoning around sexual and physical abuse. But I think it's going to, it's going to require a lot to get there. And I, I happen to feel that without that reckoning, I don't really know how we go forward. I don't know how real change happens.
2: I was watching the TED talk that you gave back in December at TED Women, and I don't know if you have read the comments on your talk that's currently up uh, at TED.com, but there's a man that comments who wrote in and both disclosed that he had been abused And then also that he was an abuser. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a remarkable result of someone hearing you talk and then having their own reckoning. It was a really, it's a really remarkable comment.
0: But, you know, I've gotten a bunch of those letters, really deep, deep letters from men who have done things that they're really ashamed of and feel bad about and need help with and my dream and I'm we I was building toward this before um covid happened is to do a group with men and follow the four stages that I wrote about and talked about in the TED talk and film it so that we have a kind of um model of of a group that men could look at and then begin to do in their own communities with their own in their own way and i think this is really such an exciting idea to me because i think one of the things i have learned about this whole process of apology is that it's for you it, it it's it's for you the perpetrator in so many ways it, it more profound than it even is for the for your victim because all of us walk around with the residue and the guilt and the shame and the pain and the remnants of harm we have caused in other people. There's shards of it. It's in our makeup, it's in our being, and it impacts our daily interactions with people. And I think if we could create processes and groups and ways that men could begin to do these reckonings without being totally shamed, without being totally Judged without being, you know, got you, but, but a really deep, profound reckoning process that went
2: on for some time. I think it is the way forward. There's a sort of reparative type of justice that occurs when something like that can happen.
0: And I think at this point in, in time that the only justice that really is going to move us forward is reparative justice, right? I think everybody is born into racist, Patriarchy, right? Everyone is born into this programming, into this DNA. And, and as a result of that, we are all either consciously or unconsciously, accidentally, or because we've done something con, you know, that we meant to do, we're all part of that story. And I think we've got to start on um, dismantling it and unraveling it. And I think the way we do that is to begin to go deeply into ourselves and look at the, the roots of it. When did it begin in us? What made us the kind of man who was capable like my father of of raping me, of beating me, of abusing me, of destroying me of of and and then and then really looking at what 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 did he do? What are the actual detailed accountings of what he did because so many men who even have pretended to take responsibility, well, I'm sorry if I hurt you, or if so, I'm sorry if I abused you, that doesn't mean anything. Right. It's really looking at the details of what you've done, the actualities of what you've done, and then looking at what are the impacts of that. What Feeling what your victim felt, going inside and feeling, and sitting with the suffering you've caused. And then making amends. And I think that process is deep and it it, it it takes time, but it's also so cleansing and so liberating and allows one to begin a whole other kind of
1: life.
2: I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing. You were born in New York City, but were raised in the northern suburb of Scarsdale, New York. You describe how your father looked like Cary Grant, your mother looked like Doris Day, and you've said you were a dead ringer for Anne Frank. Um, And in The Apology, you write that your parents didn't think of you and your siblings as anything more than props for their evolving lifestyle. Can Can you elaborate a little bit?
0: You know, I've never really been able to watch um, Mad Men because it gave me such anxiety. Me too. Really? Me too. <laughs> yes, I just couldn't watch one episode. I
2: couldn't handle <laughs> me it. Me too. It just,
0: I just couldn't do it. I just wanted to throw up. Um, but I think it was a time when people were having children as things, right? They they were these things. They weren't. They weren't. I I don't know that my mother went. Wow, I really want to have children that I love and nurture and get to know and develop. It was. It was what you did, right? To be honest, like we that whole thing—you were meant to be seen and not heard. You were meant to disappear at cocktail hour. You know, I never really saw myself as a subject, as a person in their reality. It was just something that got bought out at certain moments. There were pictures that got taken. You know what I mean? There were holidays that you sort of fit into the holiday image of a tree, even though we were kind of Jewish, but we weren't. I don't know. I I, I never felt real. You know, I never felt like a real person to them, which is in some ways very objectifying, and it makes it much easier to hurt that person, right? Because they're not real in some fundamental way.
2: Well, it seemed very much like your father didn't think you were real. He was You were more an extension of him
1: mm-hmm. exactly. um, to do
2: with what he wanted. But the first five years of your life seemed rather typical. You were a bright, engaging, spirited, highly creative child. You were deeply ethical. Uh, You describe how you shared everything with your siblings. You never told on your brother or sister, even if it could benefit you. You had an implicit and demanding sense of loyalty. And you describe how it was very important for you to be good. Mm. Where did that need for goodness come from?
0: Such a good question. I mean, I know where it came from after all the very bad stuff started because— I think once my father incested me and once he sexually abused me and then once he started to beat me, I was being called bad all the time, all the time, all the time. You know, I was, I was soiled. I was, and so I think the quest, the desire to be good became the only thing that mattered to me in my life, really the only thing that mattered to me Um, because I think he had told me so consistently and so often with such intensity and such rage and such violence that i was bad that you know i felt bad i felt bad i felt i just wanted to die all the time from that feeling of badness and so so much of my life up to a certain point was um you know when you when you believe you're bad you get involved with the wrong kind of people and the reason you're involved with people is to prove that you're good and to get them to agree that you're good. But you often pick people who aren't capable of doing that, right? Right. <laughs> so,
2: but it's also, it's, it's, you, you kind of become an endless pool of need. You know, you can't really get somebody to, to get you to feel that way. It's super hard to put that on someone else.
0: It's impossible. And it's not their job, right? Yeah. And it's your job to decide you're good. And it's your job to determine your worth and your value. And, and yet it takes so long to figure that out. <laughs> oh my God. So long. I'm still working on it. 59. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I tell you, once you get into your 60s, something happens. I promise that's you. That's what
2: I've been hearing. I'm I'm yeah. close. Not quite, but close. Um, your your father started to abuse you when you were five, which is just unthinkable. It continued until you were 10, all the years of sort of your brain forming. When he stopped abusing you sexually at 10, he began beating you physically, and this went on daily. You described the transformation from bright young child to abused 10-year-old girl in the apology and how your father worked daily to destroy your character and break your will. And though I know it's difficult, I was wondering if you might read a short excerpt of what that Transformation was like. Okay.
0: You moved like a ghost. You rarely lifted your head and hardly spoke. You never washed your hair and it was always stringy and dirty. You were unable to concentrate in school and did poorly in class. You could not pass an exam. You seemed unable to remember or contain anything at all. You were becoming stupid. You were demoted to the lower ranks and lost your closest friends. Other children could smell your desperation and avoided you like the plague or teased and taunted you. I despised you for your sweetness. But how could I admit that I was responsible for your decline? How could I tolerate the visible outcome of my brutality? Instead, I humiliated you further and made you feel your badness had made this happen, that my sweetie pie had, through her assertion and rejection, become a dirty, shameful girl
2: you outline how you were taunted by other children. And when you were 10 years old, you were assaulted by some boys in your class. They stripped you and called you seaweed hair because your hair was stringy. Did no one help you? No one? No, on the
0: contrary, I became hysterical after they stripped me and they pulled my underpants down in front of the whole school, and my parents were called in, and my father immediately began to say and demand what I had done, what slutty, horrible thing I had done to get them to do this to me, and I wasn't believed, and I was wrong, and I was the reason it happened, and then for weeks after I would go into the cafeteria and they would call me slut and they would call me dirty, stringy hair. And it was, it was horrible. But I think what we know, those of us who have been abused sexually, particularly, is we start to radiate this strange, desperate energy that really begins to attract more abuse and whether it was working in prison for eight years or working in homeless shelters, I cannot tell you how often I hear the story of one a girl being abused by her father or uncle or somebody in her family, and then that just decimation of self. And then how it begins to attract rapes and abuse from all kinds of other people. And it's 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 almost like a thermone. It's something you're sending out yeah. Absolutely. That, that says you're broken, that says you've been you've been destroyed.
2: You're worthless and you can be yeah. taken, you know. I remember um many, many, many years ago, I used to for business have to rent a car quite frequently. And I would go to the same car rental place and there was a, a work person there who I decided reminded me very much of my very, very first boyfriend um, in high school, who was was very awful to me Mm. and, and abusive. And then one day I walked into the Hertz rental, and it was at the Hertz rental, and I realized that that very same man looked exactly like my stepfather, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) who had caused Mm -hmm. me quite a lot of harm. And I thought, oh my God, I just went from one abuser to another just seamlessly without even knowing it. And I do think that there is this sort of antenna that uh, people that have experienced this type of extreme, extreme behavior um, rewire themselves to try to either overcome it or redo it somehow in a way that you become the victor or, or some way to be able to understand it.
0: I think that's one part of it. And I think there's another weird part of it, which is, it's very suicidal. It's like, it's already happened. You've lost any agency over yourself. So you might as well, the world might as well just do it to you. There There was a part of me that had given up on myself, right? That just assumed that's what was coming my way. That's what I deserved, right? That's,
2: how bad it was yeah you write about how you learned to separate from your shame and terror by constructing an alternative persona that developed the capacity to feel nothing and you learned how to disappear do you have any sense of how you did that or was it just sort of subliminal and happened organically because of what was happening
0: I think it began when I was being incest that I left my body and I i just think I left and I was above myself and I floated out of myself because it was too much. Everything about it was too much for my nervous system, for my developing sexuality, for my cells, for my consciousness, for my understanding. And so I began to learn how to go away. I learned how to shut down. I learned how to be dead and then I can remember when my father, you know, my father was always so angry because he drank and alcohol and, the, and, you know, you just listen to the footsteps. You could begin to, mm-hmm. you could begin to sense what was happening. And I remember he would call me down and scream at me and I would go in and look in the mirror and I would look at myself and I would be like, you will go away. You will not feel this. You will not be touched by this. You will not let any, and I would literally talk myself out of myself. Right. And it worked. Like, he couldn't touch me, but there's a huge price to pay for that, which is
2: that you begin to split, (laughs) right? Right. You've written about how you turned off your valves of empathy because to feel anyone else's pain would have meant to feel your own, and you couldn't do that. But as I was reading both In the Body of the World and The Apology, I was struck by even your moments of generosity, even in that one of the experiences I related to in your writing was when you tried to organize all the unpopular girls in your high school to form their own group and to quote, take back the power. (laughs) Like you were even trying in your own way to, to create some type of um, mutuality. Um, What happened when you did that?
0: It was kind of like the, the 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 test case for activism. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it was highly unsuccessful because, of course, all the girls who were in the unpopular tribe were antisocial, and so they had no <laughs> desire to be part of anything like an unpopular girls' club. <laughs>
2: how how many people from your high school have reached out to you on Facebook or social media to connect o- over the years? A bunch have, and.
0: I'll tell you a really great story that really really moved me. You know, when I wrote The Vagina Monologues, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people, but all the all the monologues are literary fictitious pieces, right? They mm-hmm. they there are themes and there are ideas and there are characters, but you know, and when I wrote um The Flood, there was this character of this woman who um, you know, had gone on this date and she had a humiliating experience. Now, nobody told me the particular story of this woman who had a flood. I just made that up. But I I used this name for the piece, which was Andy Lefkoff. And it was the combination of the two boys who had stripped me in my school. It was my just little way of saying, okay, writing is is the best revenge, right? And so um, I got an email one day from... One of the boys who wow. had seen the play and he said, I believe you were writing about me because of the horrible thing I did to you in fifth grade. And I have never forgotten it. And I have really never forgiven myself for it. And I'm really writing to ask for your forgiveness. Wow. And it Good was mind blowing. And, and then recently on this tour, his wife came to a reading of the apology just to say how sorry she was. So that was amazing.
2: That was amazing. That's extraordinary. Mm. As you were growing up, you said that drugs and booze saved your life until they started to destroy it. And you did heroin the night before your French SATs and was still so stoned the next day. You drew a huge black X through the entire exam. Um, how did you end up going to Middlebury College in Vermont after that? Well, it
0: wasn't my first college. Right. By the time like high school was ending, I was a complete, I mean, I was just a complete drug addict and alcoholic by then. But my father had somehow applied. I don't even know. I probably participated at this school called Beaver College in Clinside, Pennsylvania. And I actually went there for a year and Something had happened at the end of my high school where these two wonderful teachers had confronted me and said, We don't believe you're stupid. We don't believe you're any of these things. We think you're really smart and we want to work with you. And they had helped me to the point where I passed this AP honors history class, which was the only time I'd really, my brain had ever been able to think in all those years, right? My brain was so tortured. Like I had no memory. I had no ability to concentrate. And that was the beginning of something. And then when I got to the school, I suddenly started to achieve academically. I started to do really, really well. And I transferred um, after the first year to Middlebury.
2: What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point in your life?
0: I think from the time I was young, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I wrote because I had to write. It was like creating this alternative persona that lived in my journals, that lived where I wrote. It was like I could create language and I could create stories and I could create another world where I could live, I could be free, I could survive, right? I didn't think, oh, I want to be a writer. I just knew I had to write, right? I knew I had to write. And, and it's still the same now. Like I have to write every day. I, I just, that's what I have to do. It's how I survive, to be honest with you, and how I keep sane. And, um, I think I started to do really well at Middlebury in terms of writing. And so when I came to New York, I was writing poetry, but you can't make a, in those days, you certainly couldn't make a living being a poet. And so I thought, maybe I'll direct theater. And then all of a sudden, it kind of merged, like, oh, I could write plays, you know, like the coming together of poetry and directing. And 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 so that's how that evolved. Um, but it never occurred to me, to be honest with you, that I would be anything else.
2: Well, there was actually quite a lot of things that, that you did before you sort of found your yourself. Yeah. Um, you gave the commencement speech at your graduation from Middlebury in 1975 and spoke out against racism and sexism and have described how you then sat down in your seat in your cap and gown and drank a bottle of Jack Daniels that was passed to you in a brown paper bag. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could read another excerpt uh, about that time and what yeah. happened next. Yes, that wonderful Jack Daniels. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay.
0: I wrote my thesis on suicide in contemporary American poetry as I bartended and got laid on the pool table in the back. I was a caretaker in a Chelsea house for schizophrenics and a group leader in a homeless shelter on 30th Street. I followed Joan of Arc's route around France and took the train to Rome at midnight and wore spiky high heels for an Italian leather dyke. I took acid for three days on the train from Montreal to Vancouver, where I had a one-night stand with a famous Muslim jazz player who seduced me with his saxophone and prayerful calling. I found my way into rape refugee camps in Bosnia, wore a burqa into the Taliban's Afghanistan, drove espresso pump through landmine roads in Kosovo. I had to see it, know it, touch it, find it. Maybe I was playing out my badness or searching for my goodness or getting closer and closer to the deepest inhumanity to try to understand how to survive the very worst we are capable of.
2: This part of of your story is so incredibly heartbreaking. Um, One of the places, one of the many places I cried in the apology was how you describe how you were accepted to a very prestigious graduate school, but because you didn't have any money and your father wouldn't help you, you couldn't go. Um, where were you accepted? You you don't ever reveal that, and I'm just wondering if you would mind saying.
0: I was accepted into Yale.
2: Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was. It was really one of the most devastating moments, you know, But, you know, if I look back, Deb, like, it took me on a whole other journey. It took me on a whole other journey. And I don't regret it one tiny bit. You know, I had to survive. I had to make a living. I had to find a way to, I had no money. I had no support. I had nothing. And I had years where I had to struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. And those years made me. They created my character and they made me much, much more connected to working people, to people in struggle, to people in suffering than I ever would have been had I gone to Yale. And so I lost the connections. I lost the network. I lost the, the, the pipeline to success. Right. But in a way, it opened my soul. It took me on a journey. To the most amazing places in the world. I never would have written the vagina monologues had I gone to Yale. Never, really, really. Nope. You don't think so? I don't think so. I, I think I would have been carved into a much more traditional path. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I would have, I would have learned what the limitations were and how to be careful of them. But because. There was no one supporting me. And there were. There were people, actually, that came along who supported me. Like, I just invented my life because I had to, right? And there's something about that that it's very, very hard, but I highly recommend it because you end up as yourself.
2: Well, three years later, you married Richard McDermott, a 34-year-old bartender who convinced you to enter rehab. And you said that... Putting down the bottle and the drugs was the hardest thing you ever did. And at twenty-three, you were sober, totally broke, and with nothing, with which to self-medicate. Uh, you lived in a fourth-floor walk-up on Christopher Street. I lived on a fourth-floor walk-up on Sixteenth Street, by the way. Really? And you sold Avon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you sold Avon to drag queens in the neighborhood and taught writing in Harlem at a school for pregnant girls. Then you got pregnant, but you had a miscarriage. How were you managing? How were you? How were you living day to day?
0: I was the most anxious, crazy person. You know, fortunately, there was a twelve-step program. I, I meagerly put my money together, and I had a therapist. Um, but I was so anxious. But I'll tell you, one of the things that happened shortly after that is that my ex-husband's son, came into my life.
2: Mark Anthony McDermott.
0: And he was 15. And he was the most precious, just extraordinary being. And I related to him so deeply because he had also been through the most challenging, the most devastating and abusive childhood. And he had witnessed his own mother be murdered In front of him when he was five and carried out, and then not told for a year that she was dead. So he had not lived with his father. And when I met him, I just knew that he had to be part of my life. And that if we were all, if I was gonna move in with his father, like he was part of that deal. Right. And I have no idea why I knew that at 23, why I insisted like he had to be with us. But it was if I could love him. I might figure out how to save myself by loving him. Do you know? And yes. in many ways, that's what happened. You know, I had to grow up for him. I had to be not crazy for him. I had to be not anxious for him. I had to, I had to take care of him. And um, I just loved him so much. He was so dear and so talented. And, yes. you know, um, I said two things to him. You have to go to therapy and you have to go to acting school. And he was like, what is that? <laughs> and, you know, he, he went to both. And he became a really, really extraordinary person. And, you look, his struggle's been a deep, 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 deep struggle. Um, nobody who witnesses a, a mother be murdered, that's, that's a big one in the psyche. Yeah. That's, a, that's powerful stuff.
2: Lot After your from. miscarriage, um, Mark changed his name to the name you were planning for your own baby, Dylan. And Dylan ultimately did go to therapy and did um, go to acting school and he became a really famous actor. <laughs> um, in the 1980s, he introduced you to his acting teacher at Manhattan's Neighborhood Playhouse, who happened to be the Oscar and Emmy winning actress, uh, Joanne Woodward. And in 1987, Joanne directed Shirley Knight in a production of your play, The Depot. What was that like for you?
0: Oh, God, it was amazing. And I just want to say Shirley died last month. And it's been really hard, really hard. Um, um, she was so brilliant. And Joanne, you know what it was like? It was like being raised by the two greatest divas in the American theater. That's what it was like. It was, <laughs> yes. It was this unbelievable fortune that came to me. And, um, and Joanne was the the most nurturing, but she was also strict. She was also rigorous. I remember I I handed in the first draft of the play and I was so terrified. I, I was so nauseous. And she called me in and she said, um, the character's good. The setting's good. You've got the dialogue, but it's not funny. It has to be funny. I want it funny. And I was like, "It's a play about nuclear war." And she said, "You're funny. Make it funny." And it was it was such a teaching because I did make it funny. And by the time we finished touring that play all around America, at the Kennedy Center, everywhere, it was a comedy. But the message of working to build towards nuclear disarmament and stopping the arms race and reversing our course, was coming through that. So people were getting the message without me banging them over the head. And the two of them just taught me so much. That was my training ground. That was my beginning. And they, they stood by me and they pushed me and they, they loved me into being a playwright.
2: At that point in your life, you've written that you had no reference point for your body. And as a result, this is when you began to ask other women about their bodies, and in particular, their vaginas, as you sensed that vaginas were important. And this led you to writing the Vagina Monologues, which was first performed in the basement of the Cornelia Street Cafe in Greenwich Village in 1996. What made you think at the time that that topic was a worthy subject of the play? And as an aside, I, I do wonder if you had gone to Yale, if what they would have thought of you writing a play... With that topic.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it would have been yeah. like, oh, goody. <laughs> um, <laughs> vaginas, <you> know, yay. <laughs> yay. It's, like, it's like people always say, like, what country did you go to that they were happy about the play? I was like, there's never been a country that the play went to where they were like, oh, yummy, the vaginas are here. That has never happened. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you know, never. That was never occurred. Um, but, you know, I was interested. You know, one of the things I've always believed is that if you follow your own curiosity, if you follow your own bliss, if you follow like what interests you, what you care about, you will write the best thing. So I was interested in what women thought about their vaginas. And everything that women said to me was so surprising, so startling, so amazing, so shocking, so funny. I remember the first woman I ever talked to. I said, uh, well, do you ever talk about it? And she said, well, my mother used to tell me don't wear underpants underneath your pajamas. You need to air out your pussycat. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. And it was like that. Like every person had something wild like that to say. And I thought, this is amazing. I feel like Pandora's box literally we're opening it up and these stories that no one had told anyone before, right? And what was particularly amazing is when I first started doing this show at, um, here downtown, women would line up after the show, literally line up to tell me their stories. Like they had to tell me. And it got to the point that like, literally I was inviting women over to my apartment and I felt like Dr. Ruth, like women hours (laughs) of the day, women were, and part of it was, I just wanted to give women an opportunity to tell someone their story because they needed to tell their story you know um and a lot of it unfortunately was about sexual abuse you know yes a lot of it
2: for anybody that's seen the vagina monologues you you also then begin to have a story about seeing the vagina monologues it's really it's a bit meta but i think it's really universal since 1996, the play has been translated into 48 languages. It's been performed in over 140 countries, including sold-out runs at Broadway's West Side Theatre and London's West End. You won a Tony. You won an Obie. The play ran for over 10 years in the UK, Mexico, and France. In 2006, the New York Times called the Vagina Monologues the most important piece of political theater of the last decade, Celebrities who have starred in it include Jane Fonda, Whoopi Goldberg, Adina Menzel, Glenn Close, Susan Sarandon, Cindy Loper, Sandra Oh, Oprah Winfrey, Gillian Anderson, many others. I've seen the show twice, once with you performing the piece in its entirety and once starring Alanis Morissette. What was it like at that time for you to become suddenly so successful?
0: shocking. (laughs) It was just shocking. I mean, first of all, if, if you had said, what would be the piece that will bring you success? It would never have been in my wildest imaginations, the vagina monologues. But what was really, really exciting about it was the beginning of the building of this amazing movement and community of women. Yes. That was so wildly exciting. The first night we ever, the 1st V B-Day we ever did, which was at the Hammerstein Ballroom, which seats 2,500 people, right? I had invited all these amazing actors to perform it and and no one had done it at that point. And Marissa Tomei had come to see me perform it with Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, if you can imagine. Yes. Okay. And I went to her first because she had seen it and she said, yes. And, And once I had Marissa, then I could go to the next person say, but Marissa Tomei is doing it. And they're like, really? All right, I'll do it. And then I, I'd i say, but Marissa Tomei and Whoopi Goldberg are doing it. And then, you know, and, and it grew and grew and grew. But the night we performed it, okay, it was totally, just imagine this, in the 90s, totally packed, 2,500 people. Boy, George was there. It was just like the wildest mm. scene you've ever seen. None of those women had Ever said vagina publicly, had ever done anything like that. So everyone was like vomiting and, and, and just completely freaked out backstage. And every time one woman would go out and do her monologue, everyone would be watching on this monitor. They'd all hold hands. They'd all scream and yell. And they it was the most beautiful sisterhood of support, of love. And I'll never forget Glenn, who I love so much. I had asked her to do the reclaiming cunt piece because it was really mm. about taking that word back, and of course she was like, "What are you crazy? My mother will never talk to me." And she hung up the phone and she called me back two weeks later and she said, "I really get it." I, I said, "I just want you to go out there with little glasses, being all waspy," and 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 by the end of it, I just want you to and and she did, and when she, she did, she <laughs> ripped open that word, and by the end, the entire twenty five hundred people were screaming, "Come!" And it was like the roof of that theater blew off that night. It blew off. And to me, it was the beginning of the movement to end violence against women and girls. Now, there had been many women, of course, working on it before me. And we're always in a line and a chain of sister after sister supporting sister, right? Our movement goes Mm -hmm. back to African-American women who were fighting slavery, right? It goes back to that's when that movement began. And then there's each stage of our movement. And now we've moved into Me Too. But to be in that movement for that chunk of years, doing the play, spreading the play, getting women to share their stories, talk about their stories, break the silence. It was glorious. It was, it was, it was beyond a dream. I don't even know that I could have had that dream, you know?
2: You founded your nonprofit, you mentioned V-Day, after the Vagina Monologues debuted, and this effort, as well as your subsequent effort with One Billion Rising, you're building the City of Joy in the Congo. It's been a force in the global fight against gender violence. And yes, there have been other movements, and we hope that there'll never be a time when we don't need these movements, but... You have done more than most. You've raised over $100 million to help eradicate sexual violence. You've helped lead the conversation and educate millions of people about these topics. You've empowered women all over the world. What made you decide to go to the Congo?
0: Well, I had been in Bosnia. I had been in Kosovo. I'd been in Haiti. I'd been in Afghanistan. I'd been in war zones where women were being systematically raped as a tactic of war. And I was really obsessed with it, to be honest with you, because I could see the pattern spreading as a a tactic to destroy women all over the world. But what happened was the UN... Uh, someone from the UN called me and asked me if I would interview Doctor Denis Mugwege, and I was so shocked that anyone from the UN was calling me. And I actually didn't want to do it because we were already working in Afghanistan and Bosnia and Haiti and all these places, and I, we just didn't have the bandwidth. But then I read his resume, and I was so moved by what he was doing as a gynecologist. What. The fight he was in the midst of that I agreed to interview him. And it turned out to be this amazing interview at New York Law School for like 500 people. And you know, when you meet someone and you feel like they are on some level of transcendent (laughs) uh, radiance and, and what the work they're doing is so mind blowing. I mean, his eyes were literally bloodshot from all the horrors he had been seeing. And he just said to me at the end of the interview, would you come, would you help us? You're the only person I know who's talking about vaginas and I'm trying to talk about what's happening to the vaginas of women in Congo. And if you could come, if you could be with us, maybe you could help bring the word out, maybe just could you come? And so I did. And um, I have to say that trip to the Congo The trip to Pansy Hospital, what I saw there was out of um, it was just the most devastating, um, shocking, intersectional reality of racism, colonialism, capitalism, sexism merging in this horrifying cauldron, and all of it was being enacted on the bodies of women. There were, there were, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women in the hospital, all of whom had been raped, all of whom were leaking, all of whom's bodies were destroyed from rape. And he was there by himself trying to figure out what to do. And I don't know, I, I can honestly say, I think my brain was shattered. Like it, there was a shattering. It was the, begin, it was the beginning of another whole, um, I would say, stage of my life. I mean, Dr. McGuaghy has gone on to win the Nobel Peace Prize and Christine Schuller Descriver, who was, who is the most extraordinary activist leader, woman who I met when I went there. We all became, the three of us became very, very close and decided that we would, you know, create this place called the City of Joy. And it's been one of the most beautiful, beautiful experiences of my life. and. It's truly turning pain to power. It's a place of radiance.
2: You've said that inside the stories of the unspeakable violence, inside the women of the Congo was a determination and a life force you had never witnessed. For our listeners that might not be aware, can you talk a little bit about City of Joy and what it is and how it came to be?
0: Well, the City of Joy is in Bukavu, which is eastern Congo, where most of the conflict has been. We opened it 10 years ago. Christine and I spent weeks and weeks going everywhere asking the women what they wanted. What they wanted was a place where they could heal, where they could transform, where they could learn, where they could become leaders. And so um, it became our desire to build a place called city of joy, where the women could literally turn their pain to power. And it Hosts um, 90 women for six months at a time. Everything is paid for their food, their comfort, their healing. Um, They go through an incredible um, program of therapy through art, through theater, through dance, through music, and through basic therapy. But it's all group therapy because everything is all healing is done in community. They learn their rights, they learn permaculture, they learn self-defense. And they go from being victims to survivors, to leaders over the course of those six months. We were able to get this amazing land. So we have 350 hectares called V-World Farm, where women then go afterwards to become permacultural farmers. And they learn how to really be the best kind of farmers in their own communities. Some stay at the farm, many go back to their communities where we help them buy and purchase land where they then begin their own collectives in their communities with other women who graduate from City of Joy. And they then begin to create these farming communities and they become leaders in their community where they bring the school, the skills and the teachings that they've learned at City of Joy and where they vet other women who can, they send to City of Joy. So it's this very, very um, eco friendly (laughs) system of, people who graduate bringing other people in who bring other people in and, and and it's sisterhood passing on to sisterhood. And, you know, we've now graduated, I think 1400 women and it's unbelievable. The women are just doing so well. You know, they've become leaders. They've become, they run collectives. They've become um, nurses. They become doctors. They become, you know, um, and what I'm most proud of, is City of Joy is owned by the Congolese. It's run by the Congolese. There are no outsiders who work there. They have professionalized an entire staff. It's theirs. It's completely theirs. And you know, our our work on this side of the um, water is to find the money to keep them going. But you know, it's it's been you know, one of the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful projects. And I think now after these years, we're ready to start to see whether we can start
2: developing more City of Joys in other parts of the world. V, I mean, talk about a purpose in life. <laughs> what what have the women of the Congo and the work that you've done there taught you? Wow. Well, first of all, they saved my life. Okay. Um,
0: Because when we were opening the City of Joy, um, right around the time we were supposed to open it, I got diagnosed with stage three slash four uterine cancer, and I came very close to dying. And I had uh, seven organs removed, and um, my body rearranged, and I went through nine months of utter upheaval, uh, chemo and infections. and, And I had made a promise that we would open City of Joy. And so Christine and I, literally, we joke about this all the time. She was having nightmares in the Congo because there's no water, there's no electricity, there's no road, there's no infrastructure. I was dying, but we would get on the phone and I would say, everything's great, the money's coming along. And she would get on the phone and she would say, everything's great. We would just lie to each other. <laughs> and literally <laughs> our lies kept us going. But what have they taught me? Um, you know, there's, there's a woman at City of Joy that I, I want to talk about because she is my bodhisattva. Um, she teaches me everything I need to know about life. Um, and she has blessed me with being able to tell her story. She wants me to tell her story. Her name is Jane. She changed her name too. And um, she had suffered unbelievable, uh, unbelievable pain in in the Congo. She had been taken. She had been raped very, very badly multiple times. She went to Pansy Hospital. She was there for years where they did many, many surgeries. She went back and then she was re-raped. And the second time she was raped, they tied her to a tree for a month. And um, basically she had a baby in that time and the baby died inside her. Her body was destroyed. Um, Her story's in the film City of Joy, and by the time she was brought to uh, City of Joy Hospital, her body was in a basket. It was completely poisoned. It was destroyed. And Dr. McGuaghy always says there's just no reason she lived except that her spirit is is on such a high level of consciousness, and she was one of the people who guided us in, in saying that they wanted a City of Joy, and she was in the first class of City of Joy and has become one of the greatest leaders at City of Joy and her spirit and her brilliance and her vision and her intensity and her force of love that pours out of that woman is one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen in my life. And what she's taught me is that there is a grace that can come. There is a vitality that can come from our suffering when we turn it towards love, when we turn it towards nurturing, when we turn it towards lifting up our sisters. And, you know, if you walk through City of Joy at any time of day, you will hear the most beautiful drumming, the most beautiful singing, the most beautiful dancing. And there's a spirit there that it just feels holy. It feels from, from some other dimension. And it's healing. It's healing. Whatever that energy is, it's the force of women who have turned their suffering into medicine. And they've taught me that it's possible.
2: It helps make one's life make sense. Yeah. In 2004, you published The Good Body, which you've described as an account of your own tortured relationship with your body. And you declare that the pattern of the perfect body has been programmed into women since birth and go on to state that what is far more frightening than narcissism is the zeal for self-mutilation that is spreading and infecting the world. And I'm wondering if you could read a short excerpt from the book about this. Okay. I have been to more than 40 countries in the last six years
0: I've seen the rampant and insidious poisoning skin lightening cream sell as fast as toothpaste in Africa and Asia. The mothers of eight-year-olds in America remove their daughter's ribs so they will not have to worry about dieting. Five-year-olds in Manhattan do strict desanas so they won't embarrass their parents in public by being chubby. Girls vomit and starve themselves in China and Fiji and everywhere. Korean women remove Asia
2: from their eyelids. The list goes on and on. It's really quite extraordinary what's happening on a global basis. I was in China last year and saw that women were not only trying to remove Asia from their eyelids, but they're now also trying to change their noses and build bridges on their nose to have a more westernized nose and as well um, change their lips with with all sorts of fillers. And it's rather rampant and terrifying. You wrote and performed this in 2004. And as I was going through your work, I realized that in 2010, you published the book, I Am an Emotional Creature, The Secret Life of Girls Around the World, which is a collection of original monologues about and for girls, inspiring them to take agency over their minds, their bodies, their hearts, their curiosities. It was a New York Times bestseller. And after The Good Body, I feel that it paints a much more optimistic future about the emotional strength of what today's young women could be. And it's the last excerpt I'm going to ask you to read, if you wouldn't mind. And it's something that, that really made me hopeful. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been feeling very hopeful lately. And so I wanted to share it with my listeners. It is an excerpt from I Am an Emotional Creature, The Secret Life of Girls Around the World. Dear
0: emotional creature, you know who you are. I wrote this book because I believe in you. I believe in your authenticity, your uniqueness, your intensity, your wildness. I love the way you dye your hair purple or hike up your short skirt or blare your music while you lip sync every single memorized lyric. I love your restlessness and your hunger. You're one of our greatest natural resources. You possess a necessary agency and energy that, if unleashed, could transform, inspire, and heal the world. I know we make you feel stupid, as if being a teenager meant you were temporarily deranged. We've come accustomed to muting you, judging you, discounting you, asking you, sometimes even forcing you to betray what you see and know and feel. You scare us. You remind us of what we've been forced to shut down or abandon in ourselves in order to fit in. You ask us by your being to question, to wake up, to re-perceive. Sometimes I think we tell you we are protecting you when really we are protecting ourselves from our own feelings of self-betrayal and loss. Everyone seems to have a certain way they want you to be. Your mother, father, teachers, religious leaders, politicians, boyfriends, fashion gurus, celebrities, girlfriends... In researching this book, I came upon a very disturbing statistic. 74% of you say you are under pressure to please everyone. I've done a lot of thinking about what it means to please, to please, to please, to embody the wish of will of somebody other than yourself, to please the fashion setters we starve ourselves, to please boys we push ourselves when we aren't ready, to please the popular girls we end up acting mean to our best friends. To please our parents, we become insane overachievers. If you are trying to please, how do you take responsibility for your own needs? How do you even know what your own needs are? What do you have to cut off in yourself in order to please others? I think the act of pleasing makes everything murky. We lose track of ourselves. We stop uttering declaratory sentences. We stop directing our lives. We wait to be rescued. We forget what we know. We make everything okay rather than real. They teach you how to make yourselves less so everyone feels more comfortable. They teach you not to stand out. They get you to behave. I am older now. I finally know the difference between pleasing and loving, obeying and respect. It has taken me so many years to be okay with being different, with being this alive, this intense. I just don't want you to have to wait that long.
2: Thank you so much, V. Thank you so much. I love that piece of that book so much. Um, 2010 was a very intense year for you. This is when this book came out. This was the year you were working on the construction of City of Joy in the Congo. You were scheduled to open in May of 2010, but on March 17th, 2010, you discovered you had a huge tumor in your uterus. Um, given that you had been talking about vaginas for your entire career and the actress Kathy Najimy declared that you had the world's biggest brass ovaries, this particular disease feels really unfair and, and not to in any way make light of it, but kind of ironic. Mm. Um, you were diagnosed with stage three, four uterine cancer and went through nine months of brutal surgeries, illness, chemotherapy. You've said that in this time you touched death and it was the most powerful transformation of your life. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how so.
0: Well, I think up until this point in my life, even though there were moments like during the vagina monologues where I felt I came into my vagina and I felt, I I, I don't know that I was fully inhabiting my body. And I think what happened when I woke up from that surgery it was amazing i had tubes coming out of every part of my body i had bags i was hooked up to machines i i had a scar down my entire torso but it was the first time in my life that i was a body that it was fully mm-hmm. a body i was totally a body and that really began this 9 month journey with that disease of every day dropping more into myself. And to be honest with you, you know, when you sit in a room and a doctor looks over at you and tells you basically that you have stage slash three, four cancer, you kind of die in that moment, right? There is a death that happens in your body. Um, you, I feel it, it, that even though I went through that whole process, you don't know if you're gonna live, you don't know what's gonna happen. You, you know what the odds are and they're not good. And I think you touch into death in a way where you stop being afraid of it. You're, you're there. And then what begins to happen is you realize how much you wanna be alive <laughs> and how beautiful life is and how you want to actually live in your body and live fully in your life force, which has been muted, cut out, drained, destroyed by patriarchy, by violence, by all the all the things that have gone on in your lifetime to try to undermine and destroy you. And I actually feel that cancer was the the alchem the spiritual alchemy that turned my life where it was meant to go and I don't know that I could have done it without it because it had to level me in my body so that I finally just became body if that makes sense, where I yes. I was no
2: more than body. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm just a head. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. I totally get it.
0: I had a therapist who used to say to me, you've been coming here for four years. And I never realized you had a body, right? And, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> everything's in your head. And it was like, I, was, I wasn't I was in my head. I Everything was about my body, whether it was, a, you know, an infection where I lost 30 pounds, whether it was chemo, where I had to deal with the heat, whether it was just body, body, body. And it was a transcendental experience. It was a shamanic experience. Chemo was an experience where I started to merge and become part of trees and part of part of the world in a way where I had never ever been a part of, and um, it opened the door to a whole. I mean, I moved. I moved to the woods. Me, who had lived in the city for 40 years, I moved to the woods. I had to be with trees. I had to be with river. I had to be with birds. I had to be with sky. I, I knew that something had been born in me that was different. You know, I was a, girl, <laughs> I was a city girl who wore black and, you know, <laughs> and made jokes You sound trees. like you're describing me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, it took a while for you to, to really evolved to this place. You you published a remarkable memoir about the experience, which is titled In the Body of the World. You published it in 2013. And you said in the initial response to your illness that there was something not only passive, but somewhat downright suicidal about your early response to your cancer, a kind of resignation, um, as if you were an estranged voyeur noting your body from a great distance. How did that change to being fully in your body occur? How did that happen?
0: Well, I think most of that disembodied part was before I got diagnosed. I had been sick for quite some time before I actually went to check on it. You know, I had all the signs of something very wrong with me. As a matter of fact, I had, I mean, I'll I'll tell you this very funny thing. Like, it was not so funny looking in retrospect, but like I had been through menopause and I hadn't bled for years. And the night that Obama got nominated, I bled. And the night he got elected, I bled. So I thought it was just some amazing connection to the transformation (laughs) of what was going on in America. (laughs) But in fact, those were all the signs of uterine cancer. But I didn't treat it. I knew something was wrong in my gut, that I was swollen. I didn't treat it. I just looked at it from the distance because I had that kind of detachment from my body, right? I had this passive resignation about my body. I didn't fight for my body. And it wasn't until I got sick that that changed, that I came into this body. And and now I can tell you when something's wrong. I know instantly because I live in this body. I can feel, oh, something, I I shouldn't have eaten that, or that doesn't work for me, or I'm too tired, or I never knew when I was tired. I was always driving myself. I was always pushing myself. I was always achieving, proving I wasn't bad, proving I was good, proving I was proving, 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 proving. And- It's a surefire way to destroy your body. So to land in your body, you go much slower, right? You have to pay attention. It's a whole different rhythm. And I have to say, I love it.
2: You stated that until that moment in your life, you had never been brave enough to allow yourself to be afraid. Did that impact how you felt about needing to prove yourself?
0: Oh, definitely. You know, you know, that tough veneer that we put up, that drive that we put up that doesn't let us feel our fear, that even when we're failing, we just keep pushing forward, that doesn't take in. It, it's an invulnerability, right? Even though underneath it, we're horribly vulnerable. Right. And and now what I feel is that um, I'm vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. We're human beings on this planet Earth. We have no idea what we're doing here.
2: Now more than ever.
0: Now, more than ever, we look up at the stars and we're in wonder, but we're also, wow, what is this? You know, and if we're really open, if we're really awake, if we're really present, we are vulnerable. I think that is the greatest joy right now of just living in that vulnerability and not masking it and not, and it's different than insecurity. It's different than insecurity.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? I, am really working hard and trying to understand self-worth separate from productivity or achievement or that that same notion of proving, 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 proving. Roxanne, my fiance, has told me that every time I try to prove myself, I just raise the bar so that I have to keep doing it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's been an interesting realization.
0: And the, the question is, who are we proving ourselves to? You know... Mm one of the things living so deeply now with the earth and the mother, because I really see the earth now as my mother, my real true mother. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by her generosity, right? Just her un- overflowing generosity. Like the all of the things that she is making and creating every minute, every hour, the new flowers that come up Today, there'll be, today is orange tiger lilies. Yesterday was white daisies. The day before was beanies, like these creations. And and when I realized, you know, it's such a different model to live, not improving oneself, but to live in generosity, right? To live in, what can we give? What can we show up with? What can we offer? What can we create? What can we make better as opposed to look at me, look at me, aren't I doing it? Aren't I proving it? Aren't I making it? Because that's what this capitalist patrix has indoctrinated into us. And it's made us all sick and it's, 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 it's pushed us past ourselves and it's, it's revving up our engine to the point where we're burning ourselves out. And I want to live in the generous model. I want to live in the, how can we nurture? How can we create? How can we take care of? How can we lift each other up? How can we make sure we all have what we need? Like that to me is such a much more interesting and and it feels so much better, you know, than driving, the driving.
1: Yes.
2: Ugh. Yes. Well, you are now cancer-free. You've also performed in the body of the world as a one-woman show. And here we are now, one year after publishing your most recent book, The Apology, which we talked about at the top of the show. And I read that after completing the book, you stopped feeling any bitterness towards your father. And I'm wondering if a year later, you still feel that way.
0: I do. I do. Um, I think the book was a true exorcism of sorts. And I, at the end of the book, there, there's a line where my father, or I, or my father and I say together, old man, be gone and at that moment, it was like the end of Peter Pan when <laughs> Tinkerbell just goes into the ethers. And it, my father, same thing. He went and he, he has not been back. And I feel I have no rancor. I have no bitterness. I, I got clean. I got clean with him. But what was really clear to me is that I also didn't want his name, and I didn't want a name that he would give me, he or that he gave me. I wanted, I wanted my name. I wanted the rest of my life to be in my energy, to be with my own trajectory, and and not clouded or undermined by his story. And it's really funny. It, it, I, I make a joke like I'm down to a letter, and soon I'll be nothing. Um, Hmm, but it's kind of how I feel. (laughs) It's, 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 I feel so much of what I learned during the cancer time, and what I'm learning is how do we keep moving towards that radiant nothing, right? That radiant thing where we are just molecules that pass through us and where we're of service, where we're of love, but we don't get ourselves caught in the middle there, you know, and, um, It just feels great to be V. It's traveling light, you know? I feel I don't need a
2: suitcase. (laughs) What made you decide to choose the letter V as opposed to E or any other?
0: I just love Vs. I love everything about them. I love the shape of them, first of all, because I feel like they're conduits, right? They're openings Mm -hmm. and they're invitations, right? Um, I feel, obviously, vaginas, yonis, vulnerable, voluptuous, vulva. Virtuous. I just love words that begin with these, but I also feel that there is something so deeply archaically feminine about these, that they are about compassion, they are about connection, they are about um, openings. they're about, they're about the, vulner- the the strength of vulnerability, right? The strength of vulnerability. The power of vulnerability. And I think it's an aspiration, right? V is an aspiration. It's, it's who I want to be. And I like the idea that my name is calling me to be better.
2: The last thing I want to ask you about is love, which also has a V in it. Um, you've said that you find that you are much more loving when you have not made arrangements about how you will love. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that. It's almost like you figured out how to love.
0: Such a good question, and no one ever asked me about it, Deb, so I appreciate it. Um, I think if I'm anything, I'm pansexual. I have always loved women. I have always loved men. Um, I can never really decide, you know, which... And And I never was made for monogamy. It just was never right for me. It just... Mm. It was a system that just canceled me out and I could never be faithful to it because my sexuality was what it was. And I don't think I do that well. I'm in awe of people who do really well in relationships, right? I love my aloneness. I love my solitude. I love my privacy, and I love visits. Another <laughs> <laughs> V <a B> word. <laughs> yeah. and then, um, you know, I, when I was recovering from my um, cancer, I went to Kerala, and I went to an Ayurvedic retreat, and I worked with this amazing doctor um, who really helped me heal with the oils. And at the end of it, he told me, he said, um, do not be in a relationship again in your life.
2: Interesting.
0: You need to now just evolve and go to the next layer of consciousness, have paramours, have visits, have wonderful lovers, but keep your freedom. Your freedom is crucial to where you need to go now in your life. And when he said it, there was both this complete liberation and a little bit of heartbreak because I knew it was true. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And that's where I am now. I, you know, I, I closed the door on nothing, but the years of my life when I've been in this state have been, without a doubt, the happiest years of my life. I also am a huge believer in friendship, and I have the most amazing women friends on the planet. And those women friends, for me, are the great loves of my life. I've had those friends for years, and I I think we don't make enough of the friendship between women and oh, I, how yeah, those absolutely. friendships... Like, Save our life, lift our life, make our life. And I'm so happy I have time for those relationships now.
2: V, I want to end the show with a quote from In the Body of the World. And the reason I want to read it is because I really want to dedicate it to anyone that has ever been robbed of their dignity or their agency or their body. So these are words written by V from In the Body of the World. Those of you who can be naked, without a bank account, a known future, or even a place to call home, those of you who can live without and find your meaning here, here, wherever here is, knowing the only destination is change, the only port is where we are going, the second wind may take what you think you need or want the most, and what you lost, and how you lost it will determine if you survive. B, thank you for being such a brilliant, badass agent of change, force of nature, and thank you for joining me today on Design
1: Matters.
0: Oh, thank you, Deb. This has been a wonderful talk, and I just so appreciate the depth and care and consideration and love you put into everything you do. Really amazing. Thank you.
2: That means so much to me. Thank you, goosebumps. V's latest book is called The Apology, and you can see more about all of these work on her website at eveensler.org. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, and we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic
0: times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor and chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.
1: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.